Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. Welcome. We are privileged to be joined by Professor Carol Ben, who is a professor of breast surgery and uh, general surgery at Helen Joseph Hospital and the University of Westfastrand, a close friend, mentor, teacher, second mother, auntie to me, long-time friend. Carol, thank you so much. It's fantastic having you on my show. It's a big honor. Absolute, absolute, absolute pleasure. Really pleasure. Am I allowed to say that you are my absolute favorite registrar? So, Professor Ben, now we are, we've spoken previously to Peter Schub and we've spoken to Liat Malik and we've spoken about the ultrasound diagnosis of breast cancer. Then they spoke about the, once the diagnosis is made with a biopsy, you meet in a multidisciplinary meeting. Are you able to tell us who's in that meeting and what do you just, why do you have that meeting and what do you discuss about each patient? So I think that's such a nice question and please call me Carol. You know, I'm not really into the formal. So, um, a multidisciplinary meeting is a very important part of breast cancer management. It's the starting point. So even before you get to deciding what treatment or which specialist to see, you want a group of doctors to meet and discuss your file anew in detail. So who's in the multidisciplinary, a correct multidisciplinary meeting has specialists across all specialities. So there should be radiology, pathology, surgery, reconstructive surgery, oncology, radiation oncology, um, and then we go into other specialties that should be present, such as palliative um, care specialists, such as your navigators, who are people that are there to protect the patients from the doctors and navigate them along the journey. There are um, allied healthcare, so lymphedema specialists, physio, nursing staff, who's supposed to oncology nursing staff, document as well, and administrative staff and IT. So a correct multidisciplinary meeting means that when somebody goes for a mammogram or ultrasound or feels a lump and they go for a, for a core biopsy, and I know you've discussed this, and I, I just want to stress that there's no emergency core biopsy and people must check costs before they go ahead because it comes out of savings, and if it's not a cancer it stays as an out of savings. Once you've got your core biopsy and you've got your diagnosis of cancer, then you can claim it and put it onto a PMB. And also if people don't have access to funding, they must have the opportunity to have it discussed with them that they can have their mammograms and ultrasounds and cores done in a good government unit because these are huge costs to people. They're costs running into 12,000 rands and sometimes more. So, what happens is whoever you see, whether you see a surgeon, whether you see a GP oncology survivorship specialist or an oncologist, each patient has a diagnosis should be discussed in this multidisciplinary environment. And you divide the meeting into different stages. So the newly diagnosed, anyone who's been newly diagnosed, the information required is the, the staging, which is a clinical and radiological staging, the T and the N the biological staging, which tells you the behavior of the cancer, 
and then it's discussed. You need to look at the radiology and look at the pathology virtually and then plan what the treatment protocol is and then have feedback to the patient. You need to discuss patients who are undergoing genetic profiling, patients who are post-operative, patients who are complex. So anything keeps on coming back to this multidisciplinary discussion because what it does is it protects the patient. So there's no such thing as an emergency breast cancer management. And anyone who's been told, for example, by a surgeon, quick, you've got breast cancer. In fact, I saw two ladies yesterday. You've got breast cancer, 78, you need to have emergency both your breasts off on Tuesday. And that's not right. What you need is to find all the information, discuss with the patient, feedback to the patient. I think what we, what we need to remember is where the anxiety of having a cancer diagnosis is huge for people. We must ensure they have informed consent. So you let them know what all the options are and all aspects of potential care and treatment so they're not rushed through treatment so they have an option for second opinions an option to understand their results and not just be rushed through the system right you know me i can talk solidly so um do you want me to expand some more dean or um so same Uh, we're going to take a short ad break and when we come back i'd like to speak about informed consent a little bit this is medical monday brought to you with compliments of discam pharmacists who care Welcome back to This Care Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson, and we're speaking to Professor Carol Ben, Professor of uh, General Surgery and Breast Surgery, and we are speaking about the surgical management, amongst other things, of uh, breast cancer, and we we're just talking about multidisciplinary approach in the multidisciplinary meeting, and Carol, you just spoke about informed consent. Can you tell us what informed consent is and how it benefits the patients and why it's so important? So, so... We, we mentioned the fact that someone's been diagnosed with cancer. It's hugely traumatizing. They, they're taking less than 20% of what the doctor says. And often you get this concept where they have a diagnosis, they see their GP, they say, quick, it's cancer, they might not understand, or the radiologist, quick, go see this doctor at speed, and then they get rushed into the doctor who says, it's your breast or your life, and before they know it, they're on a theater table. And informed consent means time is taken to explain to people accurately what the diagnosis is, what the implications of the diagnosis is, what the discussions around why people should have multidisciplinary and what the options are around treatment, what the potential risks and benefits of those treatments are, and give people time to digest that. So I always say the doctor's rooms, or be it in a clinic or be it in a in a doctor's rooms is an information couch, not a decision making couch. And so, so now you've, you've got this diagnosis and you, you want to go over all these options and the important part is discussing the multidisciplinary environment. I think I want to say that today there are very few indications for a mastectomy and cancer doesn't jump from one breast to another. So, this concept of a bilateral mastectomy is a psychological choice, not based on science, but based on psychology. So it's not a... Do you remember, well, do you remember when we did that study together, uh, well, it must be about eight, nine years ago? I can't remember the results, but we looked at the, the opposite breast. What did we... So, so what we did was we looked at patients who'd chosen to have bilateral um, yeah, skin and, and the well, mastectomy. And what, what did we, we find in the other breast? 
So, so we found in less than 4% of patients you had, um, DCIS or invading cancers. 10% you had risk lesions. Okay. Low risk lesions up to 20%. So the so chance. It doesn't that, jump from one breast to the other, but, but no, but as, a, as a risk reducing procedure. So you can, you can choose to do risk reducing procedures and often people choose bilaterals for symmetry. But the scientific indications for a mastectomy today are an inflammatory breast cancer, red heart inflamed breast, and that would be after chemo, no matter what the response is. Um, multicentric cancer, so cancer throughout the whole breast. Okay, and I think Paget's disease, because the recurrence rate of having little hidden cancers in the breast is still high. So, But even for lobular cancers, which are cancers that... In 20% of people, you can have a cancer in the other breast. The 80% of them are actually isolated tumors. So today we do things such as MRI scans. We have a look. We discuss. We go over. And I think about 70% of our patients today choose an elective breast-saving surgery. So maybe I've, I've jumped the gun there a little bit there. You, you, you sit the patients down on the couch and you tell them that, you know, the cancer is not going to grow today or tomorrow significantly right. and you make the informed decision of what you want you can speak to your family friends get a different opinion get uh, different decisions tell me um when do all breast cancers require surgery and when do you make the decision or how do you make the decision whether they require surgery or chemotherapy and radiation and then after that, maybe we can talk about when does the chemo come before and or when does it come after. So I think the nice way to start this is, is no one dies of cancer in the breast. It's cancer's ability to spread. So when we, we look at a cancer, we always and everyone wants to know what stage am I. And a stage is the T, it's the size of the tumor or what it's doing in the end, what's happening in the glands, which we determine clinically but more important radiologically. Then we divide breast cancers into four behavioral types. We divide them into based on the sensitivity of the cells to estrogen and progesterone, something called an oncogene marker called HER2, and something called the KI, which I often describe as the tacky the cancer's wearing. And that's when you look down the microscope and you see how many, to put it simply, cells are dividing. It's slightly more complicated, but... That's a simple explanation. So you divide breast cancer into four different types. So you've got a T and a N, you've got a biology, and then you've got the age and how the patient is, how the patient is, um, what their physical, how they look like. So in other words, what their clinical is and what um, their medical background is. You know, let's take a short ad break and we'll be back hopefully the week until we go. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Professor Carol Ben. After that short ad break, prompted by the weed eater outside, we're going to go back to speaking to right. TNM uh, and behavior of tumors and how we know, how you know what to do. So thanks, Dean. And um, yes, it's good to know that they're at least um, cutting the grass in the government hospitals. I, I didn't know we had grass, so that's a oh, good thing. I also didn't know you had wheelies as well. There we go. Okay. So um, basically, you want to know what the fitness of the person is. So if you have a little old frail lady in her 70s who's got a lazy luminal air cancer, 
you might start on hormone medication and then look at not operating ever and giving freezing the tumor or something. So then you've got to individualize patient care. And I think this is so important. And that's why not rushing in just to have an operation. So we look at the, the stage to determine who may need what we call oncology treatment first. And we look at the behavior of the tumor also to look at who might need oncology treatment. So there's a type of cancer called a triple negative, which has no estrogen and progesterone sensitivity. And often those patients start with primary chemo. So I think the future is going to be understanding oncological response because oncology is a bit like antibiotics to treat breast cancers or cancers. So if we understand the response, we can then decide what to do and what the prognosis is. So if you rush in and just chop a breast off, and then you give people treatment afterwards, you may never know how effective the treatment is. So you often hear a lady go, I went in and I had my breast off or they saved my breast and then I had chemo and had radiation and then two years later the cancer came back. And I think that's because we don't understand or didn't then the behavior of tumor. That's why I always stress to people, don't rush into treatment. Understand in detail how the cancer is behaving before you just rush in particularly to just cut something out. So there are there are four different types of oncology treatment. I'm sure Ronwin went over this with you, and that is things such as target treatment, cytotoxics, which is what people understand as chemo, um, immunotherapy, which is the future, and endocrine treatment. And and a lot of people, if you have an invading cancer and a weight cancer, you will get either one of those or more than one of those. So Irrespective, if the cancer is invading, you're going to either need endocrine treatment before or afterwards. You may need cytotoxic targets and endocrine treatment. So you can't replace one treatment with another. You can't say, well, if I take off both my breasts, then I'm not going to need oncology. And the, the same um, is is true of radiation. So they're quite strict criteria for each treatment, for oncology treatment and for radiation treatment. So if you have a breast-saving operation, you need radiation. But if you have cancer in one gland today, you need radiation anyway. So you can't just go, well, I'm going to take my breast off and therefore not have radiation if you don't know what's going on in the lymph nodes beforehand. Um, that's why I think there's been such a trend change away from mastectomy and prostheses to breast conservation is the expanding need for radiation treatment. Okay, do you, want to, do you want to maybe tell us a bit about the different operations that you do? Obviously, we know that the original breast op was, well, not obviously, some people just tell us that the original treatment was this horrible health state mastectomy, mastectomy yes. which took off the breasts and took off the pec major muscle and was horribly disfiguring, and that was kind of the standard treatment. What kind of operations um, are you doing now? And maybe you can also bring in um, sentinel lymph node biopsy. So I think that's such a nice question because in 1952, the surgeon was king and they used to do this, these radical, awful operations. And in fact, the turning point in breast oncology was they were doing it for a type of cancer called an inflammatory cancer. And these cancers would come back quickly. And as a result of that, the grew the field of oncology, actually giving um, medicines before you treat the 
breast cancer. So today, I think the surgery is a lot more elegant. So we need to, I always say surgery is for blondes. You need to take the cancer out with a, pick your margin. I'm quite old-fashioned. I like a centimeter margin. So in our unit, we have a less than 1% to 2% chance of cancers reoccurring locally. And I, I use a technique called the sentinel lymph node biopsy. So I almost never, and you well know, do um, old-fashioned axillary dissections, even in people who've started off with cancer in the glands. And what we do is we we inject traces, different traces, and we use quite um, fancy little probes. I quite like the, the, the mag trace. And we pick up the first gland that the cancer goes to, and we assess that gland. And we sometimes sample another one or two around it, but you, it's an elegant operation. It's not a case of just shelling out all the lymph nodes with the resultant problem of people having, um, um, lymphedema. So, and also remember if you've got one gland positive, you're going to need radiation anyway. So you don't want the added burden of doing these old fashioned auxiliary um, sur- um, surgeries and what we do, which is what they do at MD Anderson as well, is something called the targeted auxiliary um, sampling. We we mark the glands pre chemo, and so that we know exactly which is the sentinel and the marked involved gland for after chemo. So we we really really being as specific as possible and as elegant as so as to not take out unnecessary lymph nodes. Also remember that the the glands are prognostic indicators. They're telling us how the tumor is behaving. So surgery is also stepped away from this concept of, well, you just got to cut it all out because there's there's been a very nice study coming out of ASCO now. So in people who are not having good responses to chemo, you should look at having more oncology treatment. So just chopping the cancer out is a bit like hiding the turnips under the carpet. Um, it doesn't improve outcomes. It's understanding behavior of cells, as I've said before. In terms of, of surgery, we, we, we use a lot of um, uh, oncoplastic and reconstructive techniques. So there are very, very few people. In fact, the patient on the table now at Helen Joseph is having a, a wide local and a little parenchymal flap. And we've actually got two out of the four patients on the government list today are having um, breast saving and immediate reconstructions. So you 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 definitely um, don't need to have a blade of surgery today when it comes to breast cancer. What do you actually do when you? I've heard of nipple sparing. I've heard of yeah. um. So I don't know if it was a skin sparing mastectomy. I've heard of a lumpectomy. Can you maybe explain to everyone what those different procedures? So are? I really divide breast cancer surgery into two types: breast saving, okay, or not. Which when we do mastectomies today, which is uncommon. We do nipple and skin saving almost always. The only indication when we don't, obviously, is if there's cancer in the nipple or if um, the patient had an inflammatory cancer. And uh, we use a variety of reconstructive techniques for that, ranging from prostheses to a technique called the Goldilocks, where we take the fat under the breast and um, we... We, we put it, we lift it up into the breast. It's like pulling up your socks and we, we actually make fairly decent breast sizes with that. But most of our mastectomies today are nipple and skin sparing. When it comes to breast conserving surgery, 
I prefer the term breast conservation and the term a wide local excision. So you're going to take the cancer out with a clear margin. So that is what people understand by lumpectomies. And the different techniques you choose will depend on the the size of the breast and the position of the tumor. So we use a variety of techniques ranging from uh, a mastopexy, which is a breast lift, to a breast reduction, to just um, moving small amounts of tissue around or bringing in a little bit of tissue from the side. So the reason why you do that is if you – the breast is, is it like fatty sweet corn in a bowl, and if you take out a portion of it and you don't move tissue in, you get a fluid collection and – Afterwards, you get a dent in the breast tissue, which is unattractive. And if you follow that up with radiation, it's very difficult to fix down the lines. Okay. Um, so who, who usually does need radiation? Do all of these patients need radiation? So people who have breast-saving surgery um, get radiation. But today we can even give in a subset of patients, we can give them a single dose of radiation in theater. That's intraoperative radiation. There's been a really nice um, review. In fact, I think it hit uh, Time Magazine. And as you know, we have um, we have the machine at Moore Park where in luminal A, small tumors, you don't need to um, radiate the whole breast. You can just give a little blast of radiation, which is far better for patients in theater. And there's, there's massive excitement about that, and it's obviously offered in most places in the world. Um, I think we've got the only machine in South Africa at the moment with that. So so other people who require radiation are people with cancer in the glands or people with big tumors bigger than five centimeters or tumors that are involving the skin or muscle. Okay, perfect. So what uh, do you want to maybe speak about um, so that you've done the diagnosis, you've done the biopsy, you've done the sensor lymph node biopsy, you've done now the surgery. What do patients do? Uh, after surgery, what's the management after the surgery? So, so remember we spoke a little bit about that they can have oncology um, treatment before surgery or they can have it afterwards. But let's say this is someone with a small tumor and uh, nothing in the gland and it's a young fit 50-year-old and you t- always take it back to the multidisciplinary meeting. And if, for example, there's anything around the behavior of the tumors that you're slightly concerned about, so it's not a very low-grade tumor, then um, what we would do is we would do genetic profiling on the tumor. And the genetic profiling on the tumor would guide us as to whether there was a need for something such as chemotherapy. So we are not um, – we are less recipe and less prescriptive and more into individualized care of patients and people today. And if when we genetically profile tumors, if the genetic profiling result is under 25 – then we say to people, you know, we've done that extra security check, and yes, there is no need for things such as chemotherapy. So, uh, again, it takes us back to that concept of multidisciplinary care, lots of checks and balances that protects patients and makes sure they're safe throughout all parts of their journey. And I think that's a very important concept of informed consent, that the patients are getting this feedback routinely and regularly, and that they know they've been discussed in massive multidisciplinary environments. So I'm very anti what I call the um, the tea party. You know, I, I like you, Dean. I refer to you. You refer to the next person, and that comes back to me. Because what you want is you actually want people to question your thinking as a doctor, and you want other specialists to say, hold on a minute, is there – 
something different or better. In fact, uh, we've got a very interesting academic discussion case in our MDM tomorrow of a lady with a very unusual metaplastic tumor. And once um, Vernon from IT had done looked at all the reviews and I'd read the reviews, we'd initially said maybe chemo first, but it turns out she's got a very unusual, quite a rare lower grade one, and it actually might be better for her to start with surgery. So it means that this concept is going back and forth and back and forth. And in fact, another lady who phoned me from Cape Town and we reviewed it in the MDM, it's resulted in her tumor going overseas to Harvard for a third review. And we're very pleased that um, our unit pathologist got the answers right and the advice to her. But having people question what you do as a specialist and and having protects patients. And I think we need to put our medical egos at the door and always remember it's about service and care to people and patients who are vulnerable when they're diagnosed. Tell me, so what about the follow-up? How often do you see them afterwards? And how so, do you monitor them for occurrences or for um, new, or, or I don't know, how do you monitor them? How do you follow so them? That's such a lovely question because, again, you, you, you have people that have been through all ranges of treatment and then come out the other side and now what? A lot of people are on um, long-term endocrine treatment. We say that's the... Um, contraceptive pill to prevent cancers coming back and some are not. But you know they're, they're often being traumatized through their treatment. Now you're saying to them you need to come in every three months or come in every six months. So there's a whole new field called survivorship and that is where you have people who are may not necessarily be the oncology surgeon or oncologist who offer um, life um healthcare advice, managing side effects of treatment, and this concept of listen to your body and get on with your life. So instead of bringing people in every three months and every six months and screening and scanning them repeatedly, which creates heightened and further anxiety, we talk about know you, know your you. So you must know yourself and know your new self and what you monitor and what you check for. So the rule of twos, if you have unusual pains or symptoms, a lot of people have, you know, you and I, we have an ache and a this and a that. But if something persists for over two weeks, to go in and see the survivorship specialist, have a look and see if there's a need to do testing or not. And this makes it more of a informal patient-driven survivorship program as opposed to, you have to see your radiation oncologist every three months and your oncology every three months because then all you do is you have these poor ladies coming in repeatedly to have see three doctors in a week and it's not necessary. So I always say I'm the kitchen of the house. If you've got a problem, let me know and we can work out who the right person is for you to see because not only is it expensive for patients, it's time of work, it's time out of family and life and again, creates heightened anxiety with this repeated coming back into oncology units. Okay, that's amazing. Um, do you want to tell us a little about uh, the navigators who you work with? Because I think you mentioned it earlier. Yes. And um, it's, it's, I don't know if many people know about the navigators. So, so, so about, oh, 10, 12 years ago, I think Julie was our first um, navigator. I was always fascinated. This is something that was set up many years ago in the U.S. and we, we set it up in the unit and I think now it should be fairly standard in all units. And that is where you have people who are trained, either nursing staff, um, it can be occupational therapists, social workers, 
or just trained administrative navigators to guide people through their journey. And it starts even um, before diagnosis. So we've recently had a lady that Kyrie has been trying for three weeks to get her into Helen Joseph. And finally, um, thank you, Dr. Shub. He did a mammogram and ultrasound for nothing and a biopsy and we counseled her and she's going to need chemo. And so it can start even in the community, making people aware when they need to check and what they need to do. Then it starts around diagnosis and costs, registering on medical aids, understanding costs of treatment, that's called financial navigation. It's about navigating people through their oncology journey, their chemotherapy. So we've just recently had a very nice publication on color-coded navigation, how people going through chemo. Chemo is hard. No one signs up to go through chemo um, before surgery or even after surgery. So what we've done is color code who's a red, who doesn't want it, who's a yellow, who's battling, who's a green, who's managing. And we've got a very nice publication out of that. So there's oncology navigators to guide people through their chemo, through their radiation, surgical navigators around procedures and hospital stays, um, young people navigators to manage things like oncofertility and um, issues particularly pertaining to young people with breast cancer. And then one of our navigators, Kiara, is a geriatric um, navigator for elderly people and their own specific problems and who brings them in, and also around palliation and also around what we call complementary care because complementary oncology is probably one of the fastest growing fields. People are saying, I don't want to have chemo. I'd rather take vitamins and herbs. And it's not as simple as that because some things do harm and some things do help and some things you can use with your oncology treatments and some things you can't. And, and we, you need to, patients and people need to understand what's the trials, what's the data, and then they're entitled to their choice. Okay, that's awesome. I know you have a psychologist in your unit as well. Does everybody get sent to see the psychologist? So, so we actually have a full psycho-oncology program. So, so we run a lot of things on, on different WhatsApp or different connection groups. And that what it means is that anyone they have, to, we've got a lot of um, forms and online forms. So we have a first contact form. So we know what people require when they come in. We have a concept of who requires oncology, psychology. I do on a, usually on a Sunday afternoon this concept of a meet and greet where I talk to um, kids and um, with their parents and listen to the questions, you know, because it's difficult for moms sometimes to tell their, their children and children when they hear the word cancer and granny had cancer or so-and-so had cancer, they then have to translate as to what does that mean with my mom. So it's hard for parents to answer questions like, is my mom going to die? I was asked on Sunday and, you know, um, sometimes just going through process and talking things through and getting to know the kids is, is very important because we are more than just a person. We are relationships with our partners. We have sexual oncology and sexual navigation. It's about how you've changed the new you and how it's going to affect the rest of your life, your kids, and that type of thing. We're going to take another short ad break. And when we come back, I'd like to talk about uh, fertility after okay. chemotherapy. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care.
Welcome back to This Care Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson, and we are speaking to Professor Carol Ben, Professor of General Surgery, Breast Surgery, Breast Specialist. Um, Carol, with most of your, with more and more of your patients being younger, yeah. maybe not having children, maybe having some children, maybe wanting to have uh, more children, what are you doing about um, their fertility post um, breast cancer treatment? So that's a lovely question. So I think the fertility question starts before treatment. So I saw a lady actually came for a second opinion, and the first thing I asked her, she hadn't had kids, was, do you want kids? She said, you know what, you're the first person who's asked me that. And she said, absolutely. She's 38 years old. So the fertility question is with that initial consult. And... You can't be dismissive. You can't say, oh, well, you know what? You've got a bad cancer. You need chemo. You can't um, undergo fertility treatment. You have to look at all the options available. And the good news is I think fertility will be funded by medical aids next year. So the, the questions are, can we, do you want children? Do you want your eggs to be used? Does, does it have to be your eggs and your husband's or your partner's sperm? Or do you only have eggs alone? Are you sick, single? Um, do you want to carry the child or do you just want children? So those are, are three important questions to ask. Then we can protect the ovaries by putting um, young women on, on a GNRH. So we actually switch their ovaries off while they're on chemo so that once they finish their chemotherapy, in a large proportion of them with the chemo we give today, they have recovery of their ovarian function. And we usually say, wait, um, a year or two years and we will look at then you can have your kids. Obviously it's their choice whether they want to wait or not and we want to get an idea of how the cancer is responding to the treatment. Then in terms of we can um, harvest eggs okay, and we can save eggs or we can save embryos and we can look at implanting them down the line. But I think your question starts at the start of treatment. A large proportion of our young girls recover their ovarian function after their chemotherapy and their surgery. But you have to have the talk beforehand. Then we usually like to say wait two years, but again, it's individualized from patient to patient. We'd stop their endocrine treatment, give them the the option to either have the baby, carry the baby, some some choose surrogacy, and then um, afterwards the issue around breastfeeding. So you can breastfeed from the non-treated or radiated or affected breast in some ladies who have had breast cancer, but oftentimes we prefer them to go back onto their oncology treatment and rather just to bottle feed the baby. Can you just repeat, can women breastfeed after chemotherapy and breast surgery? I think that's quite an important thing. So, so, so yes, they can on the unaffected breast, but oftentimes we prefer people to have, um, the, you know, bottle feed the baby and go back onto their oncology medication, for example, if they're on tamoxifen or something. But on the, the non-radiated, non, non-treated breast, it's, it's not unreasonable. They can breastfeed. Okay, I'm sure that's a big worry for um, for, for people. Um, I know you work at Helen Joseph Hospital in government sector and in private sector at Park Hospital. Yeah. Is there a difference between the treatment people can get in government and in private besides the, the waiting times? Um, 
are patients, do they get the same level of care? So that's such a lovely question because I always like to think at the Hill and Joseph unit that our patients get equal care. Um, obviously, there are aspects of care that I think are not equal. So I have an amazing unit, an amazing ward. At the moment, my ward is sadly got one last um SARS-CoV-2 patient in and I'm desperate for my ward back because as you well know because you worked with me before my ward is very much like a private ward so people can get good nursing care and good opportunity. In terms of the clinics, the clinics are big so you sometimes have waiting times to see the, the doctors. We're running 110 patients per clinic per day on a Tuesday and a Thursday at the moment and obviously we have rechanged what the clinic looks like so we've got distances between the chairs and a lot of people waiting outside and the clinics might take a little longer. Um, in terms of options of breast conservation and um, reconstruction, so the, the cases that are being done today are being done on my list without plastics. Obviously, the biggest cases are being done by plastics and recon, and, and then it often depends on what their requirements are and how they feel about it. So I think we can improve on that point of view. The next issue is that my unit only offers surgery. So I have navigators and I have counseling and I have all the bells and whistles. The The problem is, is radiation's done at CMJ and oncology. And obviously there are enormous waiting times and we really have to improve our radiation service. I think oncology tries really hard. Um, again, I, I can't stress to doctors working in the government setting that Patients are vulnerable people, and I, I always get alarmed when I think that they're not spoken to and treated with equal care and respect, and we really try very hard for that at Hill and Joseph. I must say I battled a bit during lockdown, because, you know, when you have to wear the mask and you have to shout, stand here and stand there, and I, I kind of yeah. felt like I was sounding like, like a screaming a uh, yes, yeah. when, when, when you, when you're not. But we've actually, um, what we've done now is we've really been given a very nice little, um, microphone. So, so people walk around with microphones telling people what to do. Cause I think the mask seems to make me and I think a lot of people feel half deaf. So that was quite, um. Yeah, so especially, I mean, you can imagine my patients who are really good hearing loss and I'm and, starting in my room. I, 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 I found it very hard and also, you know, it, it, it comes across like a foreign environment and very stressful. And I think those are quite stressful times. It is. So and I, they can't, and they can't see your facial expression, which no, I think. No. It's very hard because they, you know, they want to see. You can't tell. Sometimes I'm very sarcastic or telling a joke, and they can't see my face. Absolutely, yeah. it's very hard. What I did was I actually opened up my park to my government patients, and then what I what I could do is sit two meters distance and then take the mask off because it was still nicely social distance, so people could hear. And also, you have issues of remember my language is English, and you have eleven different languages, and it's not fair. To, we need to be able to speak to people in their languages, and that's where I found the navigators really helped, and they did a lot of stuff online. But I do think that um, oncology, radiation, and recon, there's a lot that can always be improved from a service point of view, but I would like to think that you can get good quality care. I mean, all I can talk about is for my unit, but I really do think that you can. Okay. Okay, that's amazing. I know, I mean... Just having worked in government myself, that the only oncology and radiation unit um, for the whole of Johannesburg. Okay. In fact, yeah. well, yeah. So they've got it steep you in Pretoria, but for the main, yes. um, it's insane that all the patients from Barrow, from Hillandosa, 
Tambo, all of them have to go for chemo and radiation to Charlotte uh, and KK. So it's really a difficult situation. But I guess, yeah, it's hard for them with the waiting times and availability of drugs. But I guess you can only, you know, fight your battle in your unit and make okay. sure your unit is at the top of its game. You mentioned that you opened, and I've seen you do this before, you opened your Mill Park practice yeah. to patients from Head & Joseph. I know you've seen often patients at Mill Park and then you operate on them at Head & Joseph. Yes. What would be, um, so patients on medical aid would come straight to you to your uh, Mill Park practice. And Head & Joseph, how do people make an appointment if they want to get to the Head & Joseph? So, so, so the, if you have no diagnosis of a cancer and you just really want to check your breast, you just come on a Tuesday between 7 and 9, it's an open clinic, and we'll open a file and see you. If you have a breast cancer, have had a breast cancer, or anything to do with the breast cancer, you come on a Thursday between 7 and 9 and open a file because we have big and complex clinics on a Thursday, such as plastics and recon. Um, we have clinics which look at um, genetics. So they're all running simultaneously. So it's very much a multidisciplinary, which is why we like our cancer patients to come on a Thursday. So like I said, it's an open clinic. So you just arrive, but you need to arrive early between 7 and 9 because obviously hospital rules, as you well know, Mean, means you have to have your file open by 10 o'clock. Otherwise, you, you can't be seen on that day. Okay, so so they, they don't need to phone the hall to make an appointment? No, no, no. Not at all. Not okay. at all. We, okay, so we're going to take our final short ad break, and the last thing I want to chat to you about afterwards um, for two minutes is just a quick self-breast uh, exam and getting yourself checked. We'll be back after this. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to our last three minutes of this Care Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson, and we're speaking to Professor Carol Ben. Carol, can you just tell us, please, uh, how, uh, who should get checked, how should they get checked, and when they should get checked in two minutes? So I think that um, everyone has breasts. Men have breasts, females have breasts, and breast cancer is neither ageist, racist, nor sexist. So... What you got to do is know your body, know your know yourself, and you've got to know your norm. So stand in front of the mirror, take your clothes off. It's an awful thing to do. People who don't have access to mirrors, just stand in front of, obviously, a respectable partner, okay, and or a friend, and you lift your arms to the side, and you want to check that there's nothing pulling your nipples in. You use the flat of your hand to examine your breasts gently, gently, gently. You don't have to squeeze your nipples and just feel over your nipples. And when you feel the armpits, the axillas for lymph nodes or glands, you feel with your arm relaxed at the side. Don't lift your arm up above your your head because then it pushes all the structures out and you can't feel properly. You don't need to squeeze your nipple. You're looking for changes on your skin, pulling in of the skin, lumps. And if something is there, um, one month and still there the following month, so it's feeling different, you need to go and be assessed. And don't be shy to say to your doctor, the doctor examines you and says they can't feel it. Remember, we don't abide on our fingers. So insist on the right radiology assessments, ultrasounds under 35 and mammograms and ultrasounds if you're over. Okay. That's awesome. Thank you very much, Professor Carol Brain. On to Carol for being with me for the past hour. I thoroughly enjoyed it, just chatting to you again and remembering why I was so uh, inspired by you. And uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you to our guests. And thank you, sorry, thank you to our listeners. 
And we please God, I'll have you back again soon. Absolutely. And looking forward to seeing you again. I love you, my child. You've done very well. Thank you. Here we go. Okay. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, everybody have a great week. And we'll see you on this medical Monday next week, 101.95. Then we're going to have, be talking about adult ADHD. And Professor Dr. Shabia Jiva will be with us again. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Have a great week.